Straight to you from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Welcome to Permit to Think. Meaningful stories and conversations from the fringe of societal norms. I am your host, Mike Dawes. As a professional fisherman and host, I've spent the last 25 years traveling the far reaches of the world. In the beginning, the goal was untouched adventures in wild fish. But I've come to realize that the people I've met along the way and their stories have played a pivotal role in seeking what I'm truly after a quiet mind, and some time to think. This ride is too short, so I'm going to start exploring the narratives of the people that have brought me here. I've been told that audio has no rules, so it seems like a good platform for someone who grew up breaking them all. Here we go. Our guest today is Dan Owis. Dan is currently the development associate at the Teton Youth and Family Services, an independent, private, nonprofit organization that has been serving children and families in Teton County and beyond since 1977. And Dan has been with the organization in one capacity or another since 2008. Dan is from Manchester, New Hampshire, Live free or die. Love that uh, license plate. <laughs> State motto. <laughs> and attended St. Lawrence University and graduated with a BA in English, Writing, and Fine Arts. And also recently received a Master's of Public Administration from St. Mary's University of Minnesota in 2020. After graduating from St. Lawrence in 2020, Dan moved to Jackson to pursue her to pursue a career in fly fishing. We missed each other by a year at St. Lawrence, but we would eventually meet each other out here in 20, oh wow, 2001, when we started working together. In 2004, Dan would become the first fishing guide in the Seychelles from the US, where he would end up spending four years before coming back to the States for good. In addition to being a highly sought after guide In the Wyoming, Idaho region, Dan also worked as a fishing guide in Utah prior to the Wyoming and Idaho season kicking off. Dan was also a member of the U.S. fly fishing team for six years. Eventually, Dan left his career in the fly fishing world in the rear view, but that was when his personal fishing started to skyrocket almost as if he could no longer walk the delicate line between a deep-rooted passion being mixed with a profession. I'm not entirely sure about that, but we'll find out. Simply put, Dan Owis is on a different level than most when it comes to trout fishing, intuitively and technically, and his fly tying is a whole different level. Dan was a member of the winning team of the Jackson Hole One Fly in 2021, It has been way too long. I am very excited to sit down with my dear friend, Ois and Reminis. Without further ado, please welcome Dan Ois. Ois, what's up, man? (laughs) How you doing, man? Good. Thanks for taking the time to come by. I really really appreciate it. I was happy for the invitation. I was happy to come on over. It's it's funny. This show, um, it forces this. You know, I mean, how many times have you and I seen each other or talked on the phone? It's like, yeah, let's do this. And then just busy, right? Totally. Time totally. Just doesn't happen. Um, but how you been? 
I've been good. I've good. been good. Busy, yeah. I'm presuming? Yes, very busy. <laughs> um, I figured we would um, start kind of in the beginning of when you and I met, just because I was looking at some photos today. And um, we, we, uh, we met each other in 2001 or early 2002. I'm not sure. And then we were off to British Columbia that fall, 2002. Um, amazingly enough, when I went back today to look at the photos of that trip, I have one photo. <laughs> Which uh, which brings up an amazing right. I mean that was pre iPhone or pre photos on. So, I mean I don't even. It, it's it's a. I mean we were gone for how long were we gone? Almost a month. Yeah, yeah. We took. I mean I. Have <laughs> one photo. I'm amazed you have one. Do you have any? No. Nothing. Nothing. Wow. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean compare that to today, right? I mean, it, it was, uh, I, I look back on that trip and there's just, I don't know, there's something very, uh, it was like the start of a journey for both of us, maybe in a way in the, into the fishing world. We didn't really know <laughs> what we were doing or I mean, where we were. I mean, we knew where we were going. That's about as, cause, <laughs> as positive we were for the whole trip about where we were going to end up. But Yeah, and we ended up. Yeah, so, I mean, for anyone listening, right, we knew we were going to, we wanted to go figure out how to catch steelhead in BC. Um, what we didn't anticipate was that we would stop along the way and barely even get to BC. <laughs> I mean, sorry, to get to Smithers by the time it was, you know, freezing. Um, freezing being, you know, I remember it. I remember fishing... Um, I don't know if you remember this, but the last, I think we left a couple days after, but by the bridge in Smithers, we had camped out right there. Mm -hmm. Remember that? That was, yeah. yeah, the high was 17. Yeah. Um, I think you went out and I stayed in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> stayed in the camp. Yeah. And then I almost went, you came back and I think just the idea of you being in there all wet, I was like, I guess it's my time to go out now. <laughs> So just to, so, I mean, I had, uh, I had actually caught a steelhead, but it was a total fluke prior to that on the clear water. It was like, I don't even know if I was allowed to be fishing from the boat, but I just like, literally threw my fly in the water and caught a steelhead. Um, but that was your first kind of, um, steelheading experience as well, right? Yes, and actually last, too. Yeah, really? <laughs> yes. You've never been back? <laughs> never been back. Oh, wow. No desire. I mean, whatever bug that um, I'm always suppressed. I mean, the avid steelheaders and their pursuit of that fish. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a scratch that never really formed for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I've been back. I have a goal to fish the major river. I mean, you we did fish the Kispiaks. Mm-hmm. And, um, anyhow, I, I know I don't have the, you know, means to, to do them all consistently, but I would like to, although things aren't really headed in the right direction in that arena. Yes. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But we, um, I mean, some of my fondest memories, right? We, we, we stopped and we stopped and fished the Missouri. That was my first time, I think, fishing the Missouri. Mine too. Yeah. And we had a good day and then we almost lost the whole show. That, yeah, <laughs> we weren't that far in the trip before we lost everything. Yeah. Which was... <laughs> what happened? Did the uh, I was trying to remember. Did we forget to put the e brake on, or it just remember at the boat ramp the whole thing started going back in the drink, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were at a boat ramp that I guess in terms of most like boat ramps in Idaho that are like fifty feet long down into this or even longer. You know, this Missouri boat ramp was maybe 15 feet it was almost the size of the truck and it was just at an angle um and we're pulling the boat up and we're just like is is the truck moving (laughs) (laughs) i was yeah i was literally thinking like oh wow we're gonna lose the whole show here right um that was uh and then we got we got to fernie and I didn't know if we were going to leave. <laughs> we ended up sticking around. I mean, we were supposed to just go through Fernie, maybe fish for a day. But you remember when we ended up convincing Gordon at the Kootenai, um, Kootenai Flash Shop or Kootenai River Angler? Anyhow, we went in there. He, he didn't like us. And then we kept going back. And then we remember we took him fishing. Yeah. That was. Uh, and then he ended up liking us because I think he realized we could row. And um, he got to fish the whole time. Right. But <laughs> yeah, it took, <laughs> it took a little convincing on our parts, you know, to actually have him open his mind to the thought of actually fishing with us, you know. I think it took days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he wanted anything to do with us. Yeah. Yeah. I think by the third day, he finally, I think he realized we weren't going away. <laughs> yeah. And we also, um, not to rewind, but we, we did that, um, which was incredible. That spay fishing lesson for the day with Gosworth. Yes. That was amazing. That was amazing. Yeah. I haven't, uh, I've spoken to him. I haven't seen him since, but, um, I still, right. I mean, that, that's still what I base my foundation. Sounds like you, <laughs> you haven't picked up a spay rod <laughs> since, but I haven't since, but I still remember the lessons of the snake roll with him. That's exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah. I mean, he was, he's, I think he saw us both cast and then was like, all right, take the rest of this out. Right. Learn this (laughs) and then go. Let's get some fundamentals here. Um, The, um, and then there was the, the lake story. I'm not going to mention the lake because I don't know if, I don't know if those folks would, would want us to, but. Uh, it was a special lake, but we were, that was when we finally got, we're headed in the right direction. And I don't think we were too far from Smithers, right? I mean, probably 10 hours, maybe. Yeah, but, it was almost like a halfway point between Fernie and Smithers. Yeah. But surpassed the point of no return. Exactly. Right. And we um, we didn't have gas, right? Oh, for the motor? Yeah. 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 So you, so we put the boat in, figured out we didn't have gas. And these guys were epic that, um, that showed up. You left and then they came over and were like, what, you know, looking at our boat and your boat 
and they were like, what are uh, you guys doing? And then they broke out, you know, the, the Christmas style Altoids <laughs> box right. loaded with the, uh, you know, thumb size joints. And um, you came back and I, I, I could barely speak. And then their setup, I don't know if you remember the setup they had with the, um, you remember that whole thing? Oh, the trolley motor they the setup they had with all the... With, with, the, with the fly rods? Yeah. And they would just kind of have them hanging out. Yeah, but they had a card table. <laughs> they had a card table in the middle and the, they had a cooler um, underneath the card table. So they were just doing laps around us. Playing cards, drinking beers, and, and uh, trolling the fly rods. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they had it figured out. Yeah, down to a T. They did. They, yeah. um, I think they, uh, they, they were doing well fishing too. Yeah. Oh, they completely outfished us entirely. Yeah, yeah, and then they got they got you to park take out <laughs> out on the lake, <laughs> and then I remember we were uh, you you ended up rowing and. Uh, you, you were able to enter my space because we were just in the weeds and you were staring, staring at the sky. Um, oh, God. And I, I was like, what are, what are we doing here? And then we get, then we get to Smithers. Um, and I don't, do, do you remember, how, how, how many days did we end up fishing? I mean, we, like we said, we, we fished the Kispiox. We fished the Bulkley two days. Two days. We then the left. And the Kispiox. Two days? I believe so. I and then... Two, we floated the Kispiox, the Bulkley one day. The first day. Right. Yeah, that's the only photo I have. Yeah. Um, which is still mind-boggling. But. Yeah. I remember, too, Trigger had jumped out of the boat and had rolled and must have been the most recent dead fish he could find <laughs> and got in the boat. And I've never smelled anything so more, so rancid. Like it was just so pervasive. Like we had dead, to like, it was a dead salmon. Yeah, yeah. Like we had to get out of the boat just to take a break from that. Oh, you know, I, I totally, I totally forgot he was on the trip. Right. Yeah. And then, um, and you had gotten him like a neoprene, you know, <laughs> thing that he could wear. Yeah. Keep him warm, you know, because, which he loved rolling further yeah. into that stuff of whatever we could find. We could never really wash out the smell half the time. Oh. Uh, oh, my God. That, um, well, you obviously, I mean, you have fond memories of that, though, but because that was, uh, you haven't gone back, but steelheading, but did you, I mean, I, I, I do. Like, I, oh, I, yeah. I mean, the journey itself was, yeah. It was never, I guess it wasn't so much about the pursuit of steelhead. Yeah. You know, it was more of the experience and just seeing something different. Um, I still have a very clear image. I mean, we live, of course, in the shadow of, of the Rocky Mountain Range, but seeing it from that perspective. Yeah. Um, and it just seemed bigger and larger. And uh, I guess it's kind of a, a different way of looking at the Rockies from there. Um, I just remember going on that highway, kind of driving up and seeing these like that pass. Yeah, they were just yeah. they were just bigger. It seemed like I'm like, I mean, ours feel like they kind of come out of the ground. I guess if there was a pass going through the Wind River Range, would we look at those mountains differently than yeah. if just driving through Pinedale? I remember going. I think I think we're talking about the same moment. I remember going up that pass, right, and then like 25 miles later, we're still. 
still going. <laughs> still going up. And right. I was like, this is, this is remarkable. Um, I have a, I have a very special memory of like you and I, I mean, we, we treated that Trey Combs book, which I still have that we took with us. Right. I mean, we, I think we each had a copy and we were tying in the camper and then, um, I think this is right before we bolted because it got too cold. And I read something um, that night about when the water got to a certain, I don't remember exactly what it was, but when the water got to a certain temp late fall and you had a short strike or you had a grab, switch to orange. And you and I both started tying some shrimp looking patterns. And um, that next day probably was the day that I came back smelling and then you, you, you left. But that was, that was when I caught, I think, which I don't have a picture of, but what was like the best <laughs> steelhead I think I've ever got. And do you remember, we also camped in the city park, took showers in the YMCA. Yeah. And remember when we met, I don't know if you've run into him again, but, um, Brent Taylor. Right. No, I have not. Yeah, I'm not. I've run into him several times. Oh, really? Yeah. He's still up in uh, Dillon, fishes the Keys a lot. But um, yeah, I, I'm with you. It was the whole adventure. I mean, we didn't we didn't pound the uh, the steelhead. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, the fact that we caught some, I thought, was miraculous. But it was a pretty... I mean, we basically almost drove to Alaska, which was... Um, I mean, you can almost describe it as a trip where we drove to Alaska versus yeah. going fishing. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, but the even like the the ferny stuff and the I mean all of it, right? I I, um, I felt that the ferny. I think if we had more sense, we probably would have just stayed in ferny. The fishing, yeah. I think we were. Bl- I, I was. I know I was blown away by the Elk River at that time. Oh my god. It yeah. was like everywhere you thought there was a fish. Yeah. <laughs> Be there. Right. Um, well, that that seemed like the beginning. And then in short order, and I was when I was looking through photos um, again in writing your, your bio, the, um, I don't have many photos of the Seychelles as well. <laughs> and again, I'm trying to figure out if this is just a sign of the times or if it is technology obviously that's a part of it but um i I, if i recall correctly bill egan um vaughn is was it drizel on drizel drizel yeah they were pretty tight and then that was how the opportunity kind of fell to you yeah i think in in one way or another i mean is that yeah, I think when Vaughn became manager for um, Shackleton International. Um, so were, he, so just to clarify, at that time it was Shackleton? It was Shackleton. So Rory Fleming kind of was building his quest to kind of uh, capitalize on lodges in the most pristine pursued places mm-hmm. at the time. Um, the Seychelles was one of them. And... Um, and I, yeah, I think the conversation was mainly, you know, Bill being somewhat of the businessman, uh, recognizing that 50% of um, the people who visited the Seychelles were American. He was kind of surprised by the fact that there was no American representation in the guide staff. Yeah. 
and um, he seemed like to him at least like a natural progression for the Seychelles. Yeah. And it's amazing to me. I mean, I don't know how much you pay attention to it now, but I mean, the Seychelles is everywhere now, right? I mean, back, back then you, you kind of heard whispers. I mean, right. I mean, Fletcher had been on a, a mothership trip and besides Bill, I didn't know anyone at that time. And now it's, you know, it's just amazing how it's progressed. Um, so I kind of feel like you, you know, you were definitely there before um, the word got out, so to speak. I mean, I, I mean, the word was out, but in a very small circle. Yeah. I mean, even for when I was there, it was still very um, secluded. I mean, when you worked there, you worked on a Pacific island. You worked in a, you know, you worked at Day Rush or you worked for this tourist industry. And, you know, you didn't really bounce around or explore, I mean, for an island complex that has 108 islands and so much stuff to explore. They, they kind of kept it very minimalized in terms of how people traveled and explored. Yeah. Um, and, you know, friends that I've known who've, who've guided there post when I was there, they were like, Oh yeah, we were at the Seychelles and then we went to day rush and then St. John's. And then we were down in Farquhar. Yeah. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, the only time I got to go visit other islands is when we would bring the mothership back and we would create like a three-week plan to go and visit different places just because we could. Was that the, was that the Tam Tam? Yeah. And, oh, the, I think, I, yeah, I totally remember that. So you, you would have to either bring it from Mahe? Yeah, we'd bring it, we'd bring it from, I wouldn't be on it when, I, when it would come down, but on the way back. Um, At the end of the season, yeah. So we'd bring it back because you know it was that the monsoon was just too windy. So you know for two months it was we just had no tourists there, and so we bring it back for more formal um, upkeep and repair. Um, yeah. And so we would of course navigate it back or sail it back to Mahe, and then we would create an itinerary of places we wanted to visit and see. Yeah. On the way back, and I think that. That level of exploring wasn't as prevalent in the Seychelles at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been fortunate enough to get on a mothership and go explore some of those spots. So yeah. <laughs> I could see how you hearing that in, in retrospect is a little frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is how guiding should be here, yeah. you know. But. but at the same time, right, I, I mean, I would like, I got there when I got to spend some time there and some time with you um that was your that was your you had just gotten there right yeah yeah and so that had to be a pretty intimidating moment yeah i mean it was i mean you showed up you're the only person from the u.s (laughs) i mean (laughs) i mean i wouldn't call i mean i don't know if i'd classify as traumatic um maybe kind of out, kind of an outer world experience. Um, I mean, you, you just kind of it, being the only one, I guess. Um, Culture just, shock. Right. And, you know, yeah. you're just, you're constantly, you're just kind of have to get outside of yourself and start building rapport with people. Yeah. And a lot to learn, right? I mean, not from the skiff to the, you know, docking to the, Oh my God. To I the mean, tides. I mean, right. I never, I, I, it was funny. I think, um, 
my first year, I would spend countless hours. I must, I don't know. If we tried to break it down and analyze the hours I spent searching and looking at places just to kind of figure out the system um, and how much I wasted of clients' time during that. <laughs> it took them on these hellish walks and stuff. Um, I mean, even Vaughn, I think, got an evaluation after like halfway through the season. It seems like, it seems like you're going on a lot of walks. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, it would have been better if I had a wash. I could say, well, I'm, I'm really just getting my steps in. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that, I mean, that was just kind of learning to feel confident in your decisions about where you need to be. Um, and I, I always think that there was just more to explore or, or a different way to, to, to fish the system outside of the normal um, approaches, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you had some hairy moments, as I recall. I mean, like you had a... Oh, you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was, there was, I think there's to some degree that there's, um, there's a lot of hope and, and trust that they have to put in guides to, to navigate a, a system that can be full of water to one that can be completely barren of water. Yeah. Um, and, and navigate it in flat light to, um, you know, complete whiteout storms. Yeah. And, and I think there was, you know, I think it's come along. I mean, we're talking 18 years ago, so, right? I mean, it was pretty much the whole thing was in its infancy. At least that's what it felt like to me. I've been been back there since. So I, I do I can compare. And it seemed to me it was a little bit like, you know, here's your uniform, go. <laughs> right, very, very cowboy-esque <laughs> at that time. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the only thing that I think could see there was progressive was the fact that they had banned... Um, complete uh, saltwater um, conventional tackle. Yeah, really? And that was the only kind of progressive move that they had made. Yeah. Um, because I think before the U.S. and all of our sports fly fishermen became aware of the Seychelles, um, the the Chinese and Japanese were well aware of the fun that they could have, you know, casting two-foot plugs yeah. over the waves <laughs> <laughs> and just ripping it back for every single yeah. GT that was just... Hungry by nature, you know. And I, I distinctly remember, I think you came home for like a brief moment and then you you were like, I was I was headed out of the atoll one day and, and you, you weren't quite sure whether or not it was, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I mean, this is again, a long time ago, but you were like, and it just, it didn't go right in the boat. The boat came back over on you, right? Oh, yeah, no, that was, um, well, we had two moments. I had, no, not two moments. I had one moment that where we, where we flipped the boat. And I, am I right? Did it come back? No, it, it actually, it, it was, um, we got pulled in a wave and it actually kind of careened over. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, which was, you know, you, you might not think that that was that bad, but, um, Looking at where we were. Well, we, if you flip a boat with a client, that's always bad. bad. I was so much more worried about the fact that we were going to be capsizing in shallow reef water. Yeah. And, and just like hitting hitting rocks right off the moment. Yeah. I mean, this was kind of the godsend moment of that whole time because um, it was it was a cut that was called, you know, um, uh, Bay Root. And it was yeah. right above Rat Rays up there. And uh, so you could almost walk between at a low tide between Rat Race and, and Beirut. Um, and it was very uh, lots of coral, lots of grass. It was almost 
it was tough in nature compared to other parts, surprisingly enough. Um, but it was a good cut to fish. And uh, I was just trying to work my way up there and timing the waves. And, and uh, I had down to like three waves and there'd be just one soft roller. And I was kind of one, two, and then the third one was coming. And I was kind of snuck in right behind it. And the fourth one just decided just to be something different. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, God. And before I knew it, just sucked me up and just flipped us over. Now, I think if we were in when I, I, I had stuck the right place because it was like it was such horrible dark light. I actually had to go past it to see where exactly where it was mm-hmm. and then circle back to come back in and then have a kind of a clear concept of where it was. So I wouldn't just like destroy the motor or anything of that. And when we flipped, I actually we actually flipped right in the center of it. So it was like the deepest spot. Oh wow, that's lucky. And if we'd gone like seven feet to the left or seven feet to the right, you know, I don't even know what could have happened. Yeah. You know? That's scary. And so when I came out and I was just like, you know, just flipped the boat and I'm swimming in the water, I was more just excited that my neck's not broken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're alive, right? Yeah. And then, of course, my clients are freaking out and trying to grab gear. And I'm like, you know, guys, just, you know, let's just be, let's just get you safe first. Let's yeah. make sure you're safe. You're like, come back in here. You know, don't worry about the gear. Um, it was a moment of pure, like, Taoist transcendence of like, yeah. just not freaking out. Um, and then the crazy thing, too, was that... Uh, you could never, we could never contact anyone at that point from that spot because it was just for some reason the distance and I think the, the, uh, the island itself uh, kind of disrupted the wave to make contact. But for some reason, just because of that day, I have no idea. Everyone heard me. Really? Yeah. And, the, and I'm like, I don't know if anyone's, yeah, like, I, cause unless I would have to, I would have to walk to um, St. Francois just to get their yeah. attention. Um, yeah. And for everyone listening, so we are, we are, I don't think we preface this well, we're talking about Alphonse and a lot of times people confuse the, the two, right? So you've got, or maybe you're, you better describe it. You've got. So Alphonse, Bajitia and St. Francois live on a Greenic plate. Um, and so they are coupled together, coupled together. Um, and there's actually kind of great deep ocean between Mahe and the main Greenic plate down to St. Francois um atoll itself so but when people you were staying on alphonse that's its own atoll right crossing over as they still do right to Mm -hmm. saint francois which is its own atoll right right okay yep um how was that how was the ride back on that (laughs) well so this this goes into the whole learning experience because this is happening i think at like this happened like shortly, it happened like at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. So it took us like two hours to get the boat back. And, um, you know, it's a, it was a very humbling uh, ride back that, of course, took forever because we we're just dragging a boat back to make sure we can get it back and get it fixed. Um, and we get back to the, uh, you know, the main, um, get back to Tam Tam in, in the, on the mooring to have lunch. And you know, we call Vaughn and let him know <laughs> this just happened, you know, yeah. um, and just kind of playing it by ear. And of course, I'm still kind of shooken up that we're alive. And, uh, and Vaughn comes out um, on another skiff and he just, you know, leave it to the South Africans. He just, just crosses the whole thing on a, on a skiff itself, um, drops it off and uh, he's going to stay on the mothership. He's like, all right, we'll get back out there. 
Yeah. And I'm like, I was like, why well, didn't even know if the clients would even get back in the boat with me? That's <laughs> just like, like forcing us all to kind of commit to the day, you yeah. know? And, um, and it was like the rest of the day was like, we, I, you know, I kind of went to a spot. It was like the worst part of the day for the tide, which, you know, yeah, we had prepared for, of course, the drop and, um, you know, and so, yeah, it was just kind of like just going through the motions at that point. Yeah. And, and on a, on a bigger level, I mean, do, do you think that like being put in that position, culture shock, what, what, what have you, right. And then given a very large responsibility, I mean, I've always been impressed with the dedication to safety, but maybe the training program at that time wasn't, <laughs> wasn't really there. Um, but do you think that being put in that situation to just thrown in, figure this puzzle out, it's a very big puzzle, um, has transcended into your own life or trout fishing, which is, which is something that people ask a lot, I think, because I, I find plenty of similarities. Like may, maybe your dedication to the, the trout fishing puzzle or um, there ha- I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, but you, you ended up go, you ended up sticking with the puzzle, right? For, for a pretty good clip and then came back and, and there had to be some very positive takeaways from the whole experience. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I guess for the time I was there, um, I mean, you learned a lot about yourself and what you can handle. And yeah. then, I mean, it wasn't like we were living in splendor there. I mean, the, it, the concrete <laughs> bunker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you had to be there for other reasons. Um, and, uh, I, I think the pursuit of trying to understand, um, and excel at something you weren't good at. Yeah. Um, to the point you were good at it was a driving force for me. And then once you got good at it, it's, um, it stopped serving its purpose. Yeah. And it's harder to leave though. Right. Cause you now you've kind of, now you're starting to figure out, you know, you got, you got some pieces in the puzzle and you want to finish it off. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think for me it was once I was feeling confident and seeing it, um, I think there came a point in realization that I just felt so withdrawn from my family and friends yep. um, that um, I don't think I, I could have survived another year. Yeah. And um, so I almost, uh, I was actually offered to go manage the, um, the Punoy River. Oh, oh yeah. And, um, and so the offer was on the table. And they're like, we'll send you out. You're going to go next week and give you a quick run through for probably a week and a half, two weeks of training and understanding and all the components to it. And we need you to manage the whole camp. And this was like, this was like my, I guess to some degree, my chance Mm -hmm. at kind of transcending to more operational uh, status and building a whole different career. Yeah. And, um, and I think it was just the withdrawal of not, being in the States, being close to my family and being so separate from it um, for those, such long periods of time. And probably, as weird as this might sound, the the distance. I mean, I know it affects me, right? Like, recently being in Africa, it's you, you, you can't just be like, all right, well, yeah, let's just go home. I mean, it's a, 
you know, you've got the pond, you've got the whole right. United States to cross. You've right. got, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've got to imagine the distance and also the age. I mean, it's, um, you're probably more willing to take those risks, but at the same time, you're, you're pretty, you know, familiar, like that friendships at that point in time, right. Play the social part of it. And it plays them. I mean, and I, I got to stay with you and witness the concrete bunker at, at that time. And, um, I could see it as being a little, a little isolating. Do, do you think that that, um, by the time you ended your career there, soured you at all on saltwater fishing? Like, do you think there was any inclination of that? No, I mean, I, I would, I would go back in a heartbeat. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think it's, I know I loved the pursuit of the hunt at the Seychelles. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a drug that you could never stop, you know? Yeah. I mean, you could, you could always hunt for bonefish or just hunting for GTs or hunting for, you know, trigger fish or milkfish. Like you could be dog tired and someone like, you know, I think that's a pack of GTs over there. And you'd be like, I, I'm going to find some energy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sip a little Coke cause it's really yeah. good over here. And yeah. we're going to go right now. Yeah. You know, um, like you would never stop, you know? So that part was always there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for me it was like, what do, it was that moment where I was like, what do I want my life to look like? Sure. What pieces do I want and who am I sharing that with? Yeah. And how am I building those relationships? Yeah. And I think for me, the seeing the clientele and all that and that lifestyle is like, this is not, this is going to be somewhat, um, it's not, that pool is not going to be deep enough for me. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, w- I was, obviously, I don't even know how long I was there. It was two or three weeks with you. The, um, which is truly amazing. Can we actually talk about that? I don't know anyone who was able to extend their visit and live <laughs> on the island in employee housing and eat. Like, I don't even know. How did you pursue that? I, deal? I don't know. Yeah. It just, cause um, it never happened again. Yeah. <laughs> Ruined it. Um, yeah, no, that was special. I, I, and then, you know, I, I've been asked the question and my answer, the question of, um, what, what was the best day of fishing you've ever had? And normally that would be a very hard question to answer, but the day with you and Paul Boyers, um, milk fishing is still the best day ever. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't, it's amazing how many times, like, People are like, what's, what's the best at milkfish Seychelles? You know what I mean? Like it was that day. Um, and, and I find I, I've thought about it a decent amount. There's so many aspects of that day because we correct me if I'm wrong. This is how I, this is how I, you know, again, we're talking a long time ago, but this is how I think it went down. We, we got to fish and extraordinarily, not to mention, was not that I was not only a guest, but <laughs> living, which I think we still need to kind of discuss a little more. <laughs> There's definitely some manipulation. I don't know some behind the scenes conversations on that one. Yeah, I don't know how it happened. I but, don't know either. Um, 
we got to fish at least three days in a row because these three days are what led up to. So I think you and I got to go out together on a skiff, which was amazing. And then you caught your first Indo-Pacific permit. And I, I, I specifically remember us tying the Merkins in the bunker and using sand as a keel, which I still think is a absolute masterstroke. Um, I don't know why I haven't replicated it again, but, um, and I was, I was, it was slick, calm. They were tailing and you stuck one And that. I still, I look at that photo every once in a while. It, it's amazing how Coleman is in the background. The, the idea of, you know, the more, you know, right? Like you look at that photo and you're like, how could you ever catch a permit in water? That's that slack. Right. Um, and then the next day, we caught another, my first ever Indo-Pacific permit. You were pulling the boat. The fish ate the fly. I totally missed it. And you screamed set. And I just blind set because I thought they had already swam over the fly. It was an amazing call on your part. And then I caught that fish. So on that next day, I guess where I'm heading, the, the best day of fishing I've ever had we were going back to look for those permit, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah we gone back to the uh, the Saint Francois like um, morning kind of route up at the top of the atoll again. And it just so happened on that day, it was still calm, and so all of the other boats, right? We waited respectfully. You know, boat the guy. The clients that were being guided, they all went outside of the toll. Yeah. Yeah, they went to rat rays because it, it was a nip tide. We knew the water wasn't going to be moving anywhere. And so they were going to go up to rat rays, anchor high up near the prawn beds, and then lower the boats down to rat rays as the, as the uh, tide dropped. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this was Jude's call. He was our head guide at that time. And of course, uh, the two other guides went with him as well. And so we went from starting a day of like everyone in the boat to all of a sudden no one in the atoll. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, once again, an anomaly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know how. And then Paul was with us on that day, right? Right. And obviously, yeah, he was with But he was planning on going with us anyhow, I guess is what I was saying. And then I don't remember who spotted it, but maybe you describe it, but we were, we were headed to that area and then there was right. Just, I mean, disturbances, let's just call them before we knew what they were. Right. I mean, well, I think we actually got up to one of the finger flats. Those finger flats kind of stretched through the atoll and we'd gotten into one on that connected, of course, with the main heart of the atoll, I guess, the main the main arms itself. Um, so not so much the finger flats. And I'd seen trigger fish and we had pursued those initially, mm-hmm. um, hoping that as it dropped, we'd see more permit. Yeah. So we're just kind of sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. But But then all of a sudden it was like, I mean, I was looking again, I looked at the total of like of all of the stuff we're talking about i think i have 18 photos um but you know there's a full-blown 
I do have some a great photo of a full blown daisy chain of milkfish, and I think it's important to um, kind of set the stage here. the The milk fishing scene hadn't really right. It was it was in its infancy, or yeah, I think it was. I mean, I think prior to me, it was gaining steam as um, as a fish that we could pursue consistently on fly. Yeah, and the fly had been figured out, right? Right. The milky dream or whatever. It's, right. Yeah. Just some kind of piece of algae. Yeah. That we would float through. Um, yeah, some were very transparent and kind of loose to even floating patterns. Yeah. Initially, yeah. And then, yeah, maybe, maybe you can touch on then what happened because um, I would like to hear your, uh, I mean, I, I, I know how it plays out in my mind, but. Well, yeah, I think we, I mean, it was kind of a, I think for, for milkfish, we were so used to the fact that we would see them through cuts. In, and they in would, current. Yeah, and they would use the current itself because it would funnel food into certain lines. We'd also used to seeing them kind of feeding outside the, outside the reef because once again as it falls off the reef itself off the atoll it would create that that seam line which they would obviously kind of farm all the algae going through there and so all of a sudden we started seeing this kind of random daisy chaining milkfish scenario and we're like what the <laughs> heck is going on i mean like total tarpon like this is so not normal um and this looks so much easier than what we've been doing. <laughs> that I think we started, I mean, it was right on the finger flats that we first started, started catching them because they were just daisy chaining close to us. Yeah. And then we were seeing multiple groups daisy chaining in their own little kind of social ways. Yeah. Um, which forced us to say, well, we need to cast further or get out there. Um, to, so we ended up using the boat. Yeah, <laughs> to get out there, um, but we never had to go very far, and so it made no sense because we had spent so much time initially for the first hour landing these things that we didn't really we just seemed to be endless opp- opportunities here. So we just took turns um, to see if we could maybe all have a milkfish on at one time, yeah. with really no care if we actually got tangled or lost them, because <laughs> yeah. there's just there was just too many to to hook. You know, um, and that's what I remember because that, that's that activity didn't stop for close to three to four hours. Yeah. <laughs> like it was it, just. Yeah, it, it was. It, it, that's I, I forgot about the finger flat part in the beginning. Right. But I definitely and maybe it's because I looked at those photos like there's there's pictures of you guys, you and Paul in the front and the daisy chain in the background and like. That, that I felt like that went on for a very long. I mean, almost, there was so much success, and there was so much laughter of fish jumping, lines crossing, switching constantly. That I think we pivoted and then all got on a coral head. Remember, remember that? Mm-hmm. And then we had the same thing happening there. Right. Um, yeah, that was. Uh, and I mean, I don't know. I, I, we didn't keep track, but I, I know that, you know, there was, you know, we hooked. I mean, what do you think? No one's going to believe us. Yeah. That's, the, that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, most people normally, if they could probably hook or land four or five milkfish in a day, 
when it's on. And that's the other thing to clarify, right? right? Like, it, <laughs> like that's like an unbelievable day. Yeah. You know, like that could transcend into a lifetime of achievements of timing, you know, of yeah. like being somewhere at the right time in the right place to experience something. And that was always the hardest thing about milk fishing was that people would travel halfway across the world to experience one moment with one fish. And it was, it was really uh, disappointing. And I'm sure very frustrating to travel that far for a lot of clients and not be able to experience that. Yeah. And they, um, yeah, not experience it cause they're just not even there. Right. They're not, yeah. even, they're not even accessible. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, for some reason I remember the count, it was upwards of, I remember for whatever reason, I don't know if this was caught, landed or jumped, but 37 and then I don't know what, what else beyond that. It was, um, you know, I have been milk fishing after that and I have seen them for like 20 minutes and they're like, up, oh, they're gone. Yep. And I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> and so it definitely like, um, I have, I have witnessed, I don't even know if I've caught another one since then. And I think part of me was like, why would you even, I mean, y- you witness something extraordinary. Like you said, most people are probably not going to believe you. At least we got Paul that was, you know, he, he can back us up. I know they that. could, they could condense us in a group and think that we're both crazy. Yeah. At least Paul could at least justify like, yes, yeah. he was present. Yeah, you know that two weeks because um, that was probably the, the you know the peak of it. You know, of course, of that two weeks of milk fishing. But the week prior, do you remember that when it was kind of crazy with clients too for milk fishing? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was. Um, that was with Bill. Yeah, and I remember Bill had we were sitting in the Tam Tam going back, and uh, I had him for the day. We spent I think seventy five percent of the day fishing for milkfish because there was just so much activity happening for milkfish and more of those classic channels and you'd hook one and spend you know 45 minutes grueling sweating trying to land this thing yeah and not, chasing it with the boat yeah not getting eaten by a shark and all this stuff and which that, was common then right i mean that yeah, was yeah yeah and um but it was just exciting and everyone was on it and everyone was getting shots i mean like I never saw a week like that again. Where really? They, where everyone had that many shots and had that many hookups and everyone was getting success. I mean, it was just a shared value at that point. Yeah. Like no one was absent of that experience, which um, was unparalleled. And I could never, we never, re- I never saw in my time that repeat where that everyone had a shot. Yeah. And Bill turned to me at one point and I had only been there for like, <laughs> you know. What, five months so i don't have like this yeah. historical perspective of years of guiding saying like but i knew enough to know that this was not normal yeah you know? and he says to me he says, you know dan we we spent a lot of time milk fishing today i'm like yeah we did like here we go yeah you know, let's go for some high fives he goes do you think you know this is the only time i've ever felt like this bill says do you think we're spending too much time on milk fishing <laughs> <laughs> And I never felt like slapping Bill ever once yeah. in my life. But at that moment, I just wanted to slap some reality into his face, you know. And I literally had to walk away. I'm like, no, I think we're doing exactly what we should be doing, you know. But and I'm sure coming that far, you think that you'd probably want to pursue, you know, all the other species that you could pursue. But, I mean, for that kind of – for those kind of opportunities, you you just have to nestle in and, be, and immerse yourself as much as you can. Yeah, and and listen, I've, I've gone back and – you know, the, the, the hard thing for me is 
when when someone books a trip like that and you inherently have to go that far for some reason something triggers in people's brains that makes them think that just because the farther they go the better the fishing and the weather's going to be right like you could go all of that way and I've, it's happened to me a bunch now whether it be a cyclone or a cyclone in the distance or something that just completely blows the week out so you know I have some great perspective now of how lucky that whole thing was. There was a couple of things um, that stood out from that day that also make it, I think, just an amazing experience. It was on the way home. Uh, the three of us were sitting with our, our backs on the glass of the Tam Tam, and we were, we were just silent, right? I mean, it's one of those things you don't need to... You don't, don't need to talk about. Right. And then uh, some guys from New York City <laughs> came. <laughs> Remember this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> they sat down and um, they started talking. And so we were being polite and talking back. And, you know, I think you or Paul or I don't know, someone said, how was your day? And they said, oh, it was, it was terrible. And <laughs> I just almost choked on my... Uh, and... And then the, the question came back to us, like, and, and how about you guys? And I think everyone just, it was just such a great moment because everyone was like, it was really tough. And, and, and I'm, I'm not a proponent of dishonesty whatsoever, but in that moment, <laughs> like, it just, you know, I realized how unique the situation was. And I don't know, I, I felt like that was a, you know, and there, it goes beyond that, right? When you, oh, even when you're yeah. at a boat ramp here and someone's like, you know, how's your day? And you're like, oh, it's unbelievable. How's yours? It sucks. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it does no one any good. Um, but then when we got back to the island, um, the three of us were sitting kind of on our own. And it was amazing that Vaughn, picked up on it i mean do you, do you remember that mm -hmm. and he's like i want to talk to you guys <laughs> right <laughs> and he pulled us out back and he was like what happened and we were like what do you mean and he's like what happened out there i see the way you guys look like don't bullshit me right and we told him and he was like god damn it <laughs> <laughs> I think he even said like he had heard about that happening, never seen it. It would be interesting to find out if anyone's seen that again. I've never heard a story repeated in that way. But I've also known that like the way the guides are fishing it now mm -hmm. and to the way we were fishing it then, you know, um, you know, they, they have discovered so many more nuances about that, that atoll, yeah. you know, which is only to be expected. Have you ever talked to Alex Gerbeck about that? Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, endlessly. About yeah. that day? Um, or about just if he'd seen anything like that? Because he was there for a long time, right? I mean, I, actually, I don't think I've ever told him the story. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to send him this. Well, yeah. I have no idea because I... Maybe I have. I mean, I think I it was more reveled in his stories and, and his finds that were different than mine at the time. Yeah. You know? And... And how it changed, and what they were pursuing, and how they're pursuing them, and so I guess the the interests of of 
of kind of strategic uh, focusing of fishing and how they would spend their time was so kind of cool to me. Yeah, especially with, uh, you know, your backstory and your your experiences. Right. Yeah, to cross-reference the whole thing. Yeah. That's, um, well, we should should find out. I, I, I mean, you know, more if it was like just some weird, right? Like some rhythm of the moon and the that year that uh, who knows um but it was uh wow that was uh that was special did we break any do how many rods did we break that day do you remember i know i broke one rod at least yeah there was rods there all kinds of stuff went down yeah and then, and then to cap it off, I remember at the end, like we were just sitting down, like we had some time left and then Paul ran after a GT and then came back with zero backing on his right. <laughs> Wait, do you remember, do you remember the, the one, two, three lift? Cause then when we were fighting the milkfish and we were trying to save it from the shark. Yeah. Do you remember that whole No, moment? I don't. Oh my God. So I had, I was fishing with 11 foot Scott, which felt very much under gun. And I had wanted 11 weight, 11 weight. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was wanting, of course, a 12 weight just to have some backbone. And I knew like, I didn't have as much pulling power. Like it was, the rod was completely straight and bend over. And I'm like, if I go harder, it's the whole thing is going to break. But the shark was going all around. Oh, I do. Yeah. We were on the boat. We were on the boat and Paul was landing. He was on his whole, (laughs) we had left him. (laughs) He had hooked one, but mine was going so berserk that we left, we pushed him on an island and go, go do your thing and try to land. I think we left him on a rock. (laughs) Yeah. And then we, we set off and trying to land this thing. And then, um, you finally looked at me like you're just gonna have to just break the goddamn rod. Yeah, you know? I remember that. And, and, oh wow! And of course, you know, if you decided to break it, then you know you only had one shot. We actually did net the thing. Um, and well, got, when it popped, right? When the whole thing broke, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it saved the milkfish. I mean, we thought. Who knows? I mean, half the time I think that we we go to a great extent to save them, but once they go to that much exertion. The shark's gonna find them anyway. Yeah, he's just waiting down there. Like, like oh, okay, yeah, you guys do your thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Once you can't see him after three feet, it's gonna be my turn. But yeah, that is uh, that's so cool that you have that experience. I mean, that is, um, and and especially now, right? I mean, I, I'm going, I'm going back there next month. I'm not, I'm not going there, but I'm going to Farqua and just, I always, obviously, always think about, you know, that day. I yeah, mean, that was. Um, it was just, it was just ridiculously special. Um, and so when you, you got back from the Seychelles and, and that was, I think I remember specifically, there was, a, there was a time you were like, I'm not going back. And then you went back and then I think you even <laughs> stayed longer and then you came back and you were done was that when you? That was when you started guiding on the green in Utah as well. No, I that was uh, guiding on the green was was my initial um, thought about trying to piece a longer season together. And yeah, I, the preseason. So that was like two thousand um, one, two, and three. Oh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. Um, 
And that's like a whole other story. I mean, I lived in a tent in the middle of early spring in Utah. I don't even know how I managed that, to tell you the truth, looking back. like Because um, it was cold, and you know, it was a couple of times I'd wake up, and I was sleeping in a puddle, and, and I would... I remember Denny Breer, God, the famous Denny Breer. Um, he would look at me and before I'd come in, because I was so cold, but I was up by like 5.30 every morning. <laughs> and I'd, I'd be sitting out in my truck waiting Not for because the, you wanted to get up because you were shivering. <laughs> because I was shivering. And um, he, uh, you know, I'd be waiting outside before the shop to open so I could go in and grab a cup of, you know, hot coffee. And and uh, he actually, he's like, you know, they had a shower there and you could pay for pay for a shower and, he was like, just please, just just take a shower. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so I tried to be kind of clean before the client showed up, you know. Um, and I don't know how I managed that for three seasons. My God. Yeah. Have you been back down there since? No. I haven't either, and I want to go. I kind of do too, actually. Oh, well, let's go. Yeah. And uh, let's go in May. Cicadas, right? It still has to be happening. Oh, yeah. And the bluings are popping like crazy. Yeah. Well, let's do that. Yeah. Permit to Think is brought to you by Off the Grid Studios. Everyone has a story to tell. Let these guys and gals tell yours, especially if the unconventional doesn't scare you. Visit offthegridstudios.com for more information. Also brought to you by Ironbound Media, a veteran-owned media company that creates, distributes, and grows podcast series for brands and organizations. Ironboundmedia.com. Also brought to you by GuidePointer. GuidePointer is a web-based software that gives your guiding service all the tools you need to manage business. I personally helped develop this software for 20 years and would have never been able to do my job without it, period. GuidePointer is a part of Romeo Bravo Software Company. Find, more, find out more information at guidepointer.com. All right, so then let's get into um, Team USA because that was uh, well. Actually, um, your current Teton Youth Family Services, right? Saying that correctly, yeah. You had already started to work there a little bit. I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, when I came back from the Seychelles, I think I. Uh, was at that point that I started looking in other kind of avenues uh, to work. And I, mm-hmm. I had um, taken a job with Teton Youth and Family Services, a local nonprofit here in Jackson Hole. And was that, um, when you started that, well, and we'll, we'll get to this whole phase, but was that at Red Top or was that at? No, that was at the group home. Okay. Yeah. So it was around that time that you started... Um, kind of your run with with team the team USA fly fishing. I'm always saying it wrong. How do you say it? Team um, is it Team USA? Team USA fly fishing. Right. Okay. And how how did that start? Was that was there some uh, influence from Sweet Pete on that or yeah Courier I, or what? How did that? I think it was I was mainly yeah Sweet Pete and and. And Hickey actually, because they were both competing. That's right, Jimbo. And um, texted me today. Yeah, I need, to, uh, I need to get back to him. And um, you know, I, I feel like you kind of. I, I think for me, it was a void of, of not really guiding as much. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so I had to pour my passion into something else. And, yeah. and this it seemed like a completely new and fascinating um, pathway to learning how to catch fish at such a different rate and different way that it just catapulted me in this direction. Yeah. I mean, there was no stop or go. It was like, oh, this is happening. This yeah. is where we're going for this, you know? And and where did you where did you start it? Because I remember it was I remember it being that way, like fast and furious. Like you you started moving around to like the different competitions and um where where did it start? I started in Oregon. It was, okay. It was my first competition. That's actually where I met Alec Rebeck. Um and then it just kind of went from there. You know, I'd go back east to North Carolina to Penn State, Colorado, Montana. And we were just, we we're just, I could, anything I could go to, I would go, go to. Yeah. And do you, and you obviously learned just a ridiculous amount. Oh God. It was, you know, it was just a, it was, a, it was a pool of knowledge that, um, was constantly expanding and growing at a rate that was unbelievable. Yeah. Because we were, I mean, at that time, everything was such a new concept. I mean, even to what people are learning now, to what we were learning then, I mean, it's, you know, it's such a gravitating rate at this point. But then it was like, there's just so, there were so many kind of little pieces that were adding on at the time that, um, that uh, we were all just learning at such a fast rate. Mostly Euro nymphing stuff or like, um, all of it, you know, fish be all of it or. Yeah. I mean, I think initially just because we were where we were as, as a country and our com- competing prowess at that point, mm-hmm. um, we were, you know, I guess strategically very focused on being, on being good nymphers because you had to, you be. were getting crushed. <laughs> we were getting crushed. <laughs> I mean, we were just, we just weren't good. You know, um, we weren't good enough. Yeah. And, um, which, you know, Courier is, is an anomaly and probably, you know, if we look back at this, at the grand scheme of things, you know, we all, we, we probably all return to a level of Courier, you know, hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. um, but Courier is not a very good nymphur, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's really good when fishing's tough, you know? Yeah. Um, and, um, so yeah, I think in terms of the, the competition circuit, it was very focused on, um, for most people at that time was, was just plain on, uh, Euro nymphing when that could be any style from Czech to Spanish to French and depending upon what people preferred. Yeah. Um, it seemed to only, you know, and then at least the people who at least could pull themselves out of that realm for just a little bit and blend tactics did, you know, for dry fly and streamer fishing as or wet fly fishing as those three additives to supplement and, and, uh, add into your arsenal, as you went through the sessions, sure, um, that became important. Um, but and you went overseas, right? Like you, yeah, I did. I did one world championship in uh, in Norway. And how was that? Um, it, it was. I mean, it was. It, it was amazing, and it was kind of like, I think your first world championship, you're always kind of in awe a little bit. Sure. Um, well, I don't know, but yeah, I, yeah, you're in there with you know 25 countries, and and you know you're looking at you know, uh, teams and, and rosters of some, like when you're looking at the, the Spanish or the, the French or Czech or Polish, even the English rosters, and you, you know, like half the names. Yeah. Not because you've never met them, 
Yeah. <laughs> because like there's been videos and articles and, and flies and, and tactics with the, that's been associated with these people. Yeah. And who have been building their own uh, knowledge base in their home countries. Yeah. Um, and then you're seeing them for the first time. You're like, oh God. So yeah. you're almost like Star Trek in yeah. kind of a very niche kind of way. Yeah, very niche. Yeah. Right? I mean, totally. Like, um, but it's, you know, it's, but there's so much, I think there's also just so much tradition to it and, and, and the walking of, uh, of, and preparation of, of the event, you know, and everyone kind of getting dressed up and being part of that, um, tradition, tradition before yeah. the, the event starts. It's just kind of amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always find it, um, I mean, you've seen it separately, like, like Erickson, you, um, obviously, courier maybe in some capacity but he, he maybe not so much but i i dabbled with that and then it was i don't know if it was holding on to some of the saltwater stuff that you and i experienced or some other stuff but but was you know immediately was like this is not the direction in which i'm going right i am not <laughs> Going, you know, but, and that's me personally, like, I, you know, it's funny now looking back on it, I have, I have the utmost respect for all of it. There's no, um, you know, I, I would never look down on any of it, but it, what I guess what I'm trying to say is it's interesting how like different, um, people pivoted out of that. Right. I mean, Erickson and yourself, like just went on to this level of, trout fishing that is, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it's <laughs> part of it, like, a, you know, is I don't even understand. I mean, and it, I don't know, I find it fascinating, right? I mean, you had you had all of this, you know, wild amount of like, saltwater information. And then you were like, ah, scrap that. Let's go on to this, <laughs> you know, the best trout fishing in the world you know, information I can gather. Um, why'd you stop? Which part? The, the saltwater? No, no. The, um, I think, I think we, I think we kind of got that. I, the, but why'd you stop the, um, the competition, the trout team USA, all of that? You know, I, I guess for me, when I kind of set my, my initial goals going into it, um, <clears throat> my goal was to get to a world championship. Mm-hmm. you know, to, to represent the U S yeah. and, um, when I got there and I got to that point, I was like, Oh my God, I've reached it. Yeah. I didn't think about what my goals would be after. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. And I think not really having a plan, mm-hmm. um, and understanding more of if I had, if I were to try to pursue other goals or what that would look like, um, was almost unsettling for me. Mm. Um, and so I, I think the year, next year I was competing, um, I didn't have my mental focus and capacity and I didn't perform as well. Mm. Um, you know, I think there were other things going on in my life that I was spending less time. Sure. Um, when I was working for, you know, Teton Youth and Family Services, you would, you would work, you know, 40 hours in two and a half days. Mm-hmm. So I had four days just to go absolutely bananas. Yeah. And I would fish constantly. And so then when I would get to competitions, like the how quick your mind could change and adapt to scenarios and mm-hmm. just do little small nuance, nuanced things, you know, and the way you would cover water 
it was almost it was, it was so practiced in you yeah just because of how much you did at that um that was always the real difference between who always constantly excelled and who didn't you <laughs> could always kind of see no matter what what circumstances were, were in the through the stages of, of a of, a, of one competition you could tell who was always practicing and who wasn't yeah um by their performance? By their performance yeah. and the way they performed on the water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the people who were just constantly thinking and focusing and, and, and working on it, they just changed so much quicker. They always change in an earlier time than the other people yeah. in changing strategies. You know, um, That actually made a difference. Yeah. In terms of how many fish they caught. Huh. Um, and so... Yeah, I think when I next year I went into it and I didn't because I had a lack of plan and I was spending less time fishing. All of a sudden, where I was and what I was doing weren't the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that adjustment is like maybe it was an indication to me like maybe I should kind of refocus my attentions and um, focus on something else. Yeah, you know. And I've always had this, um, you know. And granted, unfortunately, it's been from afar recently as we haven't been able to to do stuff like this as much as uh, we should. But I've always had this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this idea, and I think I, I obviously said it in the beginning, that y- you see trout fishing on a different level. I, I, I honestly believe that. I mean, and that, you know, at certain times, and I don't know what those times would be, but maybe this was one of them when you walked away from Team USA, but that, um, I, I definitely saw it in your guiding when, when you were like, I, you, you see it a different way. You're deeply, deeply passionate about it and the puzzle and that the, the nuances of going through the structure of a competition or the structure of having to fulfill someone else's expectations you know, of a day on the water with you guiding them almost got in the way of expanding on the foundation that you built, be it Seychelles, Team USA, your own personal fishing, guiding, trout fishing, etc. So is that is that remotely true or I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um for sure. I think uh I think um David Duncan had t- talked about it in Brothers K, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a story about the miner. Okay, let's let's and, let's and, go there. And so the miner would, you know, he would travel down to a certain depth, right? And he he would uncover some mysteries, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that was beneath the top layer, beneath where everyone else was living. Sure. And then he would come up and say, "Look what I found! This is amazing." And mm-hmm. uh, of course they could kind of be like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool, you know? And so then he would go back down in the mine the next day and dig further. And so that, you know, every time he'd come back up he explore and found something new, you know, mm-hmm. um, the distance he would travel from the people living on this one reality to the new reality he was creating, it was hard to bridge that gap Yeah. to the point where whatever he was saying and the, the, the things he would see and find they wouldn't be able to relate. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. And yeah. so I think you get to a point where you go so far down that you just, you're making decisions, seeing things at such a, a different rate that it's hard for people to kind of, kind of relate to you. Yeah. And I think that 
that is there's probably a direct correlation with that too where like I used to know where you were fishing. I used to know where you were going. I used to know most likely like what you were using or what you were doing. And it's like you kind of disappeared into the mine um, for a while now. (laughs) You're, you're, uh, you know, until I can take a look at your fly box and get blown away or, you know, it's, um, it's, it's cool. It's, it's such a different perspective. Right. Usually you hear about, you know, walking the line of of work and passion and being able to balance the two. And it's almost, you know, and and we'll we'll get on to, you know, your current, um, you know, role. But it almost felt to me like, A, maybe, you know, you wanted to, to do something a little more fulfilling, what you're doing, but also that the 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 other the conversations that were unrelatable were infringing upon what you were trying or what you were seeing and doing and then also not to mention that transforming into your fly tying i mean i remember you know this was probably 6 or 7 years ago you showed me your your boxes uh at susie's house and i was like I mean, I remember walking away and just being like, oh my Lord, <laughs> like this, this is like, um, and then when you and I went and fished Soda Lake too, I was just like, you know, I, and I'm not just, I'm not trying to, you know, blow smoke up your ass and say you're the best trout fisher. I'm just saying it, it's, it's a very interesting topic to me because it's, you, you, you saw those things blending, you went the other direction and you went quietly humbly but continued to progress and still do um and it's just i don't know i find it pretty cool yeah it's um yeah so i'm i'm glad you uh you agree because that was my hunch right i mean i i thought that's what was happening and (laughs) we haven't been able to talk about it we've never really discussed i think you i mean i don't even know how we managed it honestly because i you know, you had must have had the patience of Job with me because I would kind of, I, I had to, I had went through some serious identity pieces trying to figure out like, why is this not working like how it used to? Um, and I would, you know, I remember leaving Rollcast. I'm like, I'm just not going to do this. And, yeah. I, and then coming back and kind of doing it again <laughs> and then leaving and then coming back, you know, and I'm just like, I don't know how I'm managing this. Almost like, I don't know how you managed to stay at the Seychelles for three weeks and only paid for one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's just, you know, um, but I I do. Yeah, I think it came to a point where where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do was not this, was, was, um, it didn't really uh, fulfill the role of a guide any longer, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I couldn't serve in that role. And and you're still fishing as much now as you know. I I, I did. I actually. I, it's been so cold here, but I actually, I went out fishing on um, Christmas Day. Nice. And uh, this was actually a great example. I had with with two other people, um, Fletcher Fletcher White and his new fiance Kelly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, hey, this is a good hole. This is a good hole. And they're like, oh no, you fished that one, you know. And I'm like, okay, here, take these. These are this is what's working, you know. And so they, I go, go up the next hole. It's a steep hole up there, and there's good fish in there. And so I'm down there, and I'm, you know, 
just yanking away, <laughs> <laughs> like just having. And Fletcher comes down and he's like, "What? Where are you using?" I'm like, "I, I gave you the flies. I'm, I'm using the same ones, you know." And he's like, "Are you sure?" I'm like, "Yeah. Here, watch." You know, he's like, "Okay, okay." And, and so I come up, and, you know, after like 20, 25 minutes, I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling guilty because I'm like, "Oh God," you know, like, yeah. "Are they having the same day?" Um, and uh, and I go up there and you know. They're, they're fishless, you know, and I'm like, oh God. And, uh, so I'm realizing that now there's needs to be some shared information at this point. And, uh, and so I'm like, okay, you know, Kelly, let's go up here and let's go fish this thing. And I'm, I'm looking at her rig and, and, it, and you can tell like the water's low, you know, it's, there's not much of a wind itself, you know? So there's going to be these subtleties where like, they're going to be deep enough where they can hide and feel secure. But you can't really let them know you're going to come mm-hmm. after them, you know? And she has a thing of bobber on that looks like the size of a golf ball <laughs> and uh, has a four millimeter B that's going to sink so quickly that everything's going to know that it's not real. Yeah. Um, and then maybe the small midge behind it that you might get the dumbest one in there to eat it. You yeah. Know? And I'm like, this is not going to work. Yeah. And she's like, why not? I'm like, it's just not the right setup for this. <laughs> and uh, so we went up and I'm like, here, you know, we have to find the slow water because they're not going to move that far. You know, you have to kind of just kind of cascade things in there ever so gently and then kind of just allow it to be in there as long as it can be. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you also have to find the right speed. And so I was like, here, just take my rod and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you basic French nymphing, you know? And so we go through the process of explaining it and I'm like, and she's, and she's new to fishing. And I think, you know, marrying Fletcher, like you kind of have to embrace fishing because <laughs> that's going to be part of the time of how you're going to be spending together, you know? Yeah. And, and so being with Fletcher, it may be similar to you is that, you know, she, she understands the role of fly fishing out here as throwing hoppers to the bank mm-hmm. and then ripping streamers as fast as you can back to you, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I was, and I'm not saying that those are the only two styles that you pursue, but, um, that style of fishing is is uh, is very pervasive in our area. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and that's what people gravitate to because it is exciting. And, it's fun. And it's yeah. super fun, and yeah. it's a great way to spend the day. Absolutely. And I'm like, so I'm like, this is this is not it. Okay, that's not what you, what you can do right now. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, so we're going through. I'm like, you just need to kind of cast this thing up there, and you need to get in contact. You need to be able to feel your flies and kind of get everything in line based upon what you need to do. I'm like, okay, as guys is going up, she casts it up, and I'm like, and now you need to lead it. You know, always kind of stay in front of it, and and you can't let it fall down too deep because then the flies will sink, and then they'll be too deep, and they'll hook on the bottom, and they won't work. And we're going through the whole process. So by the fourth or fifth cast, I'm like, yep, that's that's how you need to lead it. Good, good, you're doing well. Good, you see it, you see how everything's going now. Great, now you're in that zone, and you're holding it in there, you know, and and she hooks and catches a fish, and it's like, you know. 17 inch rainbow mm-hmm. and I'm like okay now you need to repeat it because there's probably more in there so we go through the process of how I would normally probably um, fish that water if I was in a competition mm-hmm. and she realizes that she's barely taken a step and she's into her eighth fish Wow! and she's like why don't they teach us how to fish like this from the beginning? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I have no idea, you know, that's amazing. And I'm like, but there's, there's moments and times where like, you know, there's always going to be a certain strategy that kind of opens that world very easily. 
Yeah. And as long as you can accept it and practice it and be attentive to that. Yeah. Based upon the water you're trying to pursue and where you think fish will be, then you'll open up more curtains and open up more of that greater world. Yeah. But you got to be willing to go there. Yeah. And then you get your mind blown by something weird that happens and right. everything gets really skewed. Yeah. I, I, uh, I actually wrote an article about this just because I was so flabbergasted, but, um, it was mid December and Vance and I fished the upper, upper South Fork mm-hmm. and I had some hand warmers and I was really excited that I remember to bring them. And so we were going through this really shallow, skinny, fast run. And all I was doing was just, you know, roll casting the fly out of boredom and just absolutely caressing the hand warmer in the pocket in the other hand. And I mean, this, I I don't know, still, I think about it, like why this fish was where it was, A, and B, like it ate the fly. And when it ate the fly, I was so shocked by years of data being plugged in as to where fish should be, you know, this time of year, this water temperature and flows. And I, it just, it floored me. It was like, wow, you, you know, you just, you know, not only did you blow it <laughs> like because you were just so happy with your hand warmers, but. You know, it's that it's that typical. The more you know, you you really don't know, right? Um, well, let's let's transition on to um, you know uh, the Teton Youth Family Services role that you're in, and so uh, we we touched on it briefly. Two thousand and eight, you started and then went through several different capacities, right? Yeah, and and then when did you when did you transition? Uh, full-time um well i think i I started working there full-time in the group home okay and um and you were able to carve out some guiding yeah so i was able to you know um i i think when i was kind of when i went back to guiding as you know looking for supplemental income um i would guide on the weekends Mm -hmm. and i was actually at that time i was a manager so i'd be working like five days a week and then guide on the weekends, which was a great plan. You know, work seven days a week all summer, you know. Um, <laughs> here I'm trying to work on um, providing, you know, more coping mechanisms and strategies <laughs> for people. And here I'm doing this, you know, just yeah. burning myself at both ends. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that was, um, you know, Teton Youth was a saving grace for me in so many ways. Because um, I was able to kind of... Um, you know, taking the tools and the strategies we learn in guiding and building people up, mm-hmm. and, and apply it, and apply those skills and and, the, and that maybe that mindset um, in a way to to help people that were kind of unstable and mm-hmm. struggling in their own capacity, um, and embracing the fact that being unstable and struggling um, was not necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, yeah, not at all. I mean, it, it's. Uh... You know, it's part of what this is about, right? Like breaking down some of the the societal norms that just drive me fucking insane. But it's like the way that we look at struggle, right? I mean, it's it's taboo, but yet everyone (laughs) goes through it. It's it's absurd. Um, Yeah, and what motivates that? I mean, do we we react out of fear? 
Uh, do we react? To, do we instantly react based upon what could possibly happen or lead to? You know, based upon these decisions and. Um, yeah, and how much does past experience play right. into it? Yeah, and, do we play? Do we play a life that people need to act and do in a certain way to find value and happiness out of it? Yeah, um, we. I think we have a very sometimes closed-minded view upon what leads to that. Yeah. You know? um, and so, what were the different capacities? Because um, you've kind of, I mean, as I remember, right, there, you've had multiple. Yeah. So I, you know, I started off, this is kind of interesting, I, you know, for a small nonprofit, you like, you wonder how, like, what can you build from? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I started off as, as just working in the group and as a youth care staff and then um, eventually became a manager of, of all the youth care staff. And, and just to set the background, so the organization, right, is for... Is it troubled youth or youth with going through tough time, or how would you characterize or summarize? Teton Youth and Family Services is a private nonprofit. Yeah, that um, provides a level, a continuum of care mm-hmm. in terms of their services. So everything from early prevention to intervention, mm-hmm. and so a lot of that time, I think we you know. Most most recent research is, is always going to be preventing or always looking to provide preventing services to help support kids and families so that whatever troubles or unstableness they do find mm-hmm. doesn't lead to something more down mm-hmm. the road. And so um, we provide a, a continuum of care to really pursue levels of early prevention, supportive roles as much as we can to those levels where things are maybe escalating or becoming so more unstable that we they need greater needs and services at that point. And is it a paid for service? It, uh, it's a nonprofit, so there is uh, we give we raise money itself for um, scholarships. But, but if I'm coming in with my kids, I'm not. The service is free or no? Um, so what? we have like uh, the Jackson Leadership Program. That's a summer program for kids. And mm-hmm. Uh, most people will pay for that service. Okay. Um, we do have scholarships for families that can't pay. Mm-hmm. Um, we have community counseling for families that are struggling um, that, that they, don't, they don't have to pay for those. You know, okay. We provide a levels of, we look at that as a kind of a family advocate project where we try to provide a, a, a kind of cohesive amount of care that um, will actually get them to a place where they are, don't need those services any longer that they're yeah. finally in a place. So with no caveat that they need to pay for that, but let's make sure that you are in a better place as, yeah. a, as a child and as a family. Yeah. So there's a lot of different levels. There's a lot of different yeah. levels. Those are early prevention, but then we're looking at a group home um, and that rate, you know, if we can't just, you know, you can have a voluntary placement and we will cover the first 30 to 60 days, depending upon where that child is. Mm-hmm. And most kids, when they're in that place and they're in there for that voluntary service, mm-hmm they don't need more than 30 days to have enough time to really think about what do I want? What do I want to be different? And they work with the youth care staff. They work with the, with the counselors and they have one-on-one counseling. They have family counseling and they kind of like, well, what's going on? How can we, there's nothing, you know, what's, what's happened to you Yeah. that's gotten to this point? You know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with you. What's, what's happened to you? Yeah. <laughs> and I would say most of the kids that we see um, have experienced some sort of trauma in their life. Mm-hmm. And that they're they're having a hard time getting past, and so when you're dealing with trauma, you're dealing with a you know a limited level of, of a toolkit for a kid. 
Mm-hmm. They're not going to, um, they're going to cope and, and think in the same way. Um, and sometimes some of their patterns and their ways of coping can be kind of destructive to their nature. Sure. And what, what age groups? Like what? Um, all? you know, yeah, or? most of the time, I mean, I think we're, we, we historically probably see most kids between the ages of 10 and 18. Okay. Um, but the Herschel Center sometimes will, you know, are meeting with kids that are, you know, sometimes six and seven. Mm-hmm. So, and then if we do, we also provide levels of forensic interviewing, which is only like three state certified forensic interviews in the state of Wyoming. Um, we do about 40 forensic interviews in a year. Uh, What's a forensic interview? Forensic interview, um, mainly when there's a case of maybe childhood abuse. Okay. Um, is that when, you know, someone has called the police and of course has filed a report, a forensic interview provides a one-time chance where we can sit down with that child and ask them, you know, you go through a process of training to kind of ask and explore the allegation. Mm-hmm. And and then when it's and it's videotaped, so that it gives it a one-time deal for us to really kind of look into it and see if there's any validity to the allegations. And so, what was happening in the past is that there would be an allegation, and then the the, the cops would be like, please, you know, we need to come, you to come in and talk to us, you know, and and then they might call them back in, and then maybe a prosecutor would talk to them. And so during this course, and they maybe a counselor would talk to them. So during the course of maybe two, three, four, five interviews. Not only is this child having to relive the trauma, mm-hmm. but their stories kept changing. <laughs> and so it was hard to base any reality to it. So then if there really was validity to the abuser, it was hard to prove. Sure. And so then it could perpetuate the harm. So you wanted to, to give a, or the organization gives a good setting and a controlled environment to capture that where they're comfortable and then document it. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Well, I kind of got I kind of got you sidetracked on that whole thing, but yeah. th- that actually helps a lot. And there's just you know I was on the website today looking through it. So you've got the Van Vleck House, which was the first, and then what the Hirschfield Center. Hirschfield Center for Children. Yeah. And then what's the third? Red Top Meadows. Red Top Meadows. Okay. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So back to so you started. You were saying in the where I was in the group home. Group home. Okay. Yeah. And then. Uh, after five years, I um, I took over the, the diversion program for T-Town Youth and Family Services. The what program? Diversion program. Diversion, okay. Yep. Um, sorry, I, I feel like my face is moving further from the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, and that's, uh, if you're not familiar with diversion services, um, you know, we're looking at, you know, you know, we're looking at terms of juvenile justice. You know, what do we do when um, a juvenile kind of breaks the law? Mm-hmm. How do we respond in that? And of course, every state's going to have their own, you know, kind of thought process. Um, but they're, you know, juvenile justice provides more of a, a kind of a, a process in where kids can take more accountability for their actions and actually learn from them. And so instead of, you know, Wyoming is a state that um, it doesn't really matter what age you are. If you, you know, if, if you are found guilty of a crime, um, you go into criminal court and you're treated as an adult. Really, um, and if you're charged, you know, then it goes on your record. And it doesn't get expunged when you turn 18. Wow. Um, and so diversion is set up in the legislation so that every prosecuting attorney can try to find alternative routes to deal with the situation, because we have we have separated juvenile court and criminal court separately. 
mm-hmm. so that when a kid has need of greater services and greater care, we can look to place that case in juvenile court to really maybe maybe you know put resources behind them so maybe we can really make a change that's important for them you mm-hmm. know but for something like a first time offense and a first time on the in in the system itself um we you know we often wonder can we do more preventative things more community based um kind of situations to help curb that behavior and allow them to use it as a learning experience so for first time offenders juvenile diversion uh, can be a wonderful experience where they're going to have to be in that thing for, you know, six to seven months and they're going to have um, a supervisor and checking with them and they're going to have a, a list of expectations to fulfill. Most of them will be community service, maybe, you know, drug and alcohol counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be levels of apology. There could be restorative justice conferences, you know, depending upon the actual citation so that, when they walk away, they have more levels of accountability and a kind of a greater appreciation for the rules that are in place. Yeah. And so you were, they were coming in that capacity, they were coming to you. Yeah. Every entry point is going to be a citation. Okay. Yeah. And has that changed where no matter what you do as a, as a minor is still, still treated as an adult? Is that, that's still, yeah. I mean, our 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 prosecuting attorney, our elected prosecuting attorney, you know, she, Aaron Wiseman, she's our gatekeeper. That's mm-hmm. her job. You know, in every every county, you know, our that lead prosecuting attorney, that's going to be they're going to be a gatekeeper to determine what are we going to pursue here. Mm-hmm. Um, what's most important to the values that we have as a community, to the laws that we have to keep ourselves safe. Sure, and. That creates, I think, you know, it creates a moment of discussion and, and kind of figure out what's best uh, moving forward. You mm-hmm. know, is, and so when you're looking at citations, for, I mean, most of the kids are are usually 14 and older, you know, mm-hmm. are just starting to kind of um, individuate away from their parents and want to be independent. And they're not really thinking about who they're hanging out with, <laughs> what yeah. they're doing, sure. um, the ripple effects of their actions, you know, yeah. um, they're just kind of in this world where they get to have this, you know, liberating experiences hanging out with peers. Yeah. Um, and so of course things can escalate and kind of get out of control and they can make a lot of choices prior that also might lead them to a citation. Hmm. Um, they, you know, was it a poor choice for sure? Is it a great learning experience without a doubt? Yeah. You know, and that's the beauty of it, right? That's I mean, inherently the beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as someone who dealt with that <laughs> growing up, <laughs> I mean, I uh, in the beginning I didn't have. I was fortunate enough to end up in a situation, you know, at a school that, you know, where where valuable valuable experiences and and people to go to and take these monstrous mistakes that I was making. And evaluate it, right? Take a look at it and, and hopefully learn a lesson. And I definitely look back on that time. And I think that's why I'm so interested, obviously, not only what you, you know, the, the organization sounds, you know, amazingly honorable, et cetera, but I also have a personal kind of interest. Because without that, right, you, it's pretty easy to see where these things can go. Um, and, and I off, you know, not often, but I have thought about it. I mean, there's been several times where right. I could have um, just really gone off the rails. But. Oh, especially being from Generation X. 
Yeah. I mean, we were in this kind of weird time. We, were, we I mean, our, our experiences in childhood are so different than. Yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if in, in, I mean, obviously we're talking about 14 years now of you working with the organization. Um, how would you, what are the biggest differences between our generation and the current children you're seeing? Oh. <laughs> I mean, with, <laughs> without going into four in the morning, you know. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, technology has to yeah, play. Yeah, I like, think technology, of course, plays a huge role, you know, and I, and, but the thing is also, if I were to say there was be something consistent, I wouldn't say there is entirely. I think that hmm. what happens is that, um, I think almost each grade that I see is different. Hmm. You know, they have different struggles. You know, they have different strengths. They have different weaknesses. And, you know, of the five years I was in, you know, juvenile diversion, I mean, I would say most of the, most of the cases that I did were, were kids exploring with the use of drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but then, and then of course that would be just the initial entry point, but then seeing if there was anything else going on with the child. Um, I think from a group home standpoint, that might be a better base to decide like what were kids coming to the group home for, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because with juvenile diversion, you're looking at kids who can probably stay in the community. Sure. That, you know, they might be struggling in school, uh, might be struggling with some self-esteem, some depression, who knows, um, or just, you know, making poor choices and choosing poor friends to hang out with. Whereas when we're looking at the group home, that might be more of a kind of early intervention, mm-hmm. um, needing a little break on life. And it's like, what's going on here? Like, how So they we- can be taken out of the community and put into the... Yeah, no, yeah, it's meaning that there seems to be more harm destruction coming from just being at home right mm-hmm. now. So maybe we need to take a break from that. Sure. And be like, okay, can we can we have some kind of honest discussions and kind of work through this to seeing like how do we have a more fulfilling and happy life at home? Mm-hmm. And that you know, I think for voluntary placements, which is truly fantastic uh, for this community, you know, there's times where as kids are you know, pulling away from their, from the nuclear family and kind of trying to figure out who they are, like there can be some big battles in that sure. capacity. And sometimes having a time where they can spend five or, you know, six days away and like talking it over and working through and then developing a vernacular where they can, they can talk about it as a family yep. and able to get past it. And so do the parents engage? Oh, of course they have, they have to. to. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. It's not, this wouldn't work without a relationship with both the child and the parents. Yeah. I was going to say that was, uh, that was the, one of my biggest takeaways from where I, I ended up was, um, there was no just dumping your kid off. Right. Like right. if the parents, if the parents didn't get involved and make a commitment and actually work at it, um, it was almost as if the kid is not allowed because you're the problem. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> and, uh, Hey, for someone who got in a lot of trouble at a young age, that's a pretty cool lesson. And then hopefully, right. It all, it all turns the right way. Um, and then, so then what, what kind of led you to pursue the masters? Just, a another, cause that was, that was pretty recent. I mean, that was, I remember definitely talking to you when you were, 
getting the getting your master's degree and working were you working full-time part-time or yeah, i was working full-time yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> horrible i mean i really I, I had great confidence in myself thank god um thinking that i could get through it um and manage it yeah um you know it was a learning experience for me getting that master's um just in knowing what the course load was like and my obligations and to getting that work done, but then trying to manage a job and my life, you know, um, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a great learning experience. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I went back to school mainly because I think probably more of my nature is like, if I kind of go in a direction, I want to know everything about it. (laughs) (laughs) I want to figure out how it all works sure, and why it works and how can we make it better? You know? Um, and so, yeah, that's, it seemed to me that the, uh, getting the master's in public administration gave me uh, such a greater overall view of how a system is supposed to work at, yeah. at its ideal state and how to analyze when it's not working mm-hmm. and at what different level from an organizational perspective do we need to change or focus on to embrace a culture that is actually going to be serving a population at its, at its greatest, you know? Yeah. And is that when you transformed into your current role? Yes. Well, give or take about a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took me. I it took me a year to kind of figure out, or kind of at least get enough confidence, enough stamina in myself to say, okay, I need to. How am I going to pursue this, and where can I apply this knowledge? Because mm-hmm. um, my initial thoughts was like, okay, do I just jump into the the public sector? That seems kind of like a natural progression. Um, that's what most of my, you know, professors had said. Mm-hmm. So I looked a lot in public sector and um, like Minnesota and, and Wisconsin and thinking that maybe I should look for a change in scenery entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I met uh, Lisa Price. Um, she's like, why don't you, why don't you get into development? And I'm like, why would I do that? She goes, cause you're good at making relationships. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and and I think that you would probably be served best of using your skills in that in that kind of field. And um, so that's when I proposed a job to our executive director, being that we had a nonprofit that wasn't that big when it first started, and it's grown in size, and it's been growing every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we never had anyone in the development position. I mean, all those kind of um, responsibilities, kind of fell mainly on the ED and maybe from the uh, kind of chief operations manager. But, um, I think, so I think it was the timing itself. We kind of became a role where I think kind of applying, you know, proposing for that job. And then, and then the executor looking at it, it's like, that could be kind of a nice position to, as we kind of look into how we're going to evolve going forward, that she accepted it. And, We've been trying to figure that one out for the last eight months <laughs> ever since, you know. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's a that's progression, right? I mean, that's a that's a just challenge. It's a good challenge. Oh, it's and, a great challenge. Yeah. yeah. And um, well, it's it's been great just to even hear. I mean, I, I, you know, it's awesome to hear more about. Sounds like an amazing organization. I mean, um, and it has to be fulfilling for you. I mean, it has to be fulfilling work. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm sure like there's all kinds of shit that doesn't, you know, some spreadsheets probably not too fulfilling, but, right. but overall, right. There's these moments that have to happen where you're like, wow, you know, I had a hand in that. 
right or our organization did or what what have you yeah yeah i think when i think about tyfs you know i think about like um if we weren't here what what, what would we do how would this be dealt with you know yeah. um no one really wants to intervene on someone else's problems yeah um and when it gets ugly you know and it gets kind of um tough to deal with it's it, you know people shun away so it's like to have a whole group of professionals who actually lean in during those times yeah um is a wonderful asset to have absolutely yeah that's cool the mistakes out there running around <laughs> um well this has been uh this has been awesome man i um we need to uh, we need to get together more. I'd love to uh, wrap this up with just a couple of thought topics. One of them we already covered, which was the the biggest difference um, in generations. Which I got a little bit of technology out of you, but that's that's. Um, I think going back to that, I didn't really go that far, but I do think technology has created kind of an alienating process for kids to yeah. figure out that I don't think our generation will fully understand. Because when we were kids, it was like we had the rotary phone. Yeah. And even the rotary phone, we could only go so far yeah, away from the base and have a conversation. Yeah. And there was no alternate reality in there, you know, um, where we identified with. So we identified with our groups of peers or whatever those peers would be. And these kids have, you know, identify with, you know, maybe the different posts they're seeing or the different groups that they are associated with or the groups they're not associated with, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah. And as a parent, right. It, for me, it, it drives me into these totally hypocritical situations all the time that I'm, that I'm starting to recognize where I'm like, why is all, why do all you care about is screens? Like, why are we, why are we battling about this again? And then they're like, you're, and then I go back and I'm like typing a text on my phone. You know what I mean? They're like looking at me like, "You're, aren't you using your phone right? Like, aren't you on a screen?" And I'm like, "God damn it!" You right. Know what I mean, like it's, it's almost like we're trying to teach, or I'm trying to teach from like, you know, how I grew up, but yet here I am entering in the world in which they're growing up, and it just it doesn't make not entering actively participating in with the phone and the iPad or what, what have you. Right. Right. Um, well, I mean, there's always boundaries though. I mean, the yeah. fact is that even if you're using your screen, right, you have a fully developed brain. Yeah. And so you have the potential to kind of look back from that or take breaks or know when you need to take breaks to connect with people. Yeah. And so you have that kind of executive functioning mm -hmm. to kind of see that and know when you're going too far. Sure. You take a developing brain that, they don't have any of those executive functioning skills. Yeah. So they do need boundaries. They do need time limits. Yeah. There are going to be different expectations until yeah. they have a fully developed brain. Sure. And until they show the ability to kind of regulate themselves. Yep. And only then can they start. And at that, that point, that I think they can maybe have make their own decisions on how they want to spend their time. But, yeah. you know, between the ages of... I mean, when they first started getting interested in the phones until, you know, they're in their 20s, I think they're, 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 they don't need to be just thrusted in and spend as much time as possible. There's nothing they're going to gain from it. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, it's a hard one to hard one to balance. Yeah. Um, what uh, what are you reading currently? Um, gotta be reading something. Yeah, I'm reading Atlas of the Heart. Atlas of the Heart. Yeah, What's that about? That's Brene Brown's new book. Oh wow. Yeah. I actually um. I have. Uh, I'm trying to think of one of her first books. Uh, the power is it the power of vulnerability or? It sounds right. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Is it good? You know, um, it's really good. Um, it? It's not like um, it's not a complicated read. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously a lot of research into it, but it it takes um, it, it it it's hope or its main guiding light is to build emotional capacity. Mm-hmm. And so I think her first initial thoughts, and I guess the way to kind of think about it is that as a human, if we only had three buckets and, and we, and of course, go over going to research, there's like three major emotions that most people identify with, and that would be happy, sad, and fear. So if we only had those three buckets to emotionally conceptualize everything that we felt, mm-hmm we'd be pretty limited in our capacity. (laughs) And so she goes through a lot of different stages of different things that we could feel, you know, everything Hmm. from awe and, and wonder to, um, you know, resentment and frustration and Mm -hmm. disappointment and separating those out in different ways for you to have a better understanding of the intricacies of those. Mm -hmm. So you can be able to categorize it better for yourself. And sit with it, I'm presuming. Well, yes, and also probably cope with it better. Yeah. You know? Um, she, Renee Brown, always, I think she's always, she embraces kind of like the work in progress mm-hmm. of her own self. And she often uses her own personal experiences and, you know, her works and battles with her husband to kind of shed kind of a more natural light on it. Like, mm-hmm. we are all not perfect. Part of learning to be better is going through the process and embracing it, you know? Yeah. And looking at old destructive patterns or like similar fights that maybe you and your partner have always been in mm-hmm. and like, how do we get past it? How do we sure. always not fall into this hole? You know, um, yeah. you know, she had a great one. I just read last night about expectations, mm-hmm. which I think is a, it's a, it's a wonderful, you know, rule to kind of always play by. Cause especially when you're cohabitating with people, like you're going on a trip or you're um, going into a weekend or you have a weekend with the kids or whatever. You know, everyone maybe has some different expectations, you know. Yeah. And so, like, what do, what do you think this is going to look like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't talk about it, and yeah. they're all wildly different. It's right. just a fucking hot right. mess. Right, yeah. who knows? And you get all these arguments. But if you yeah. have an idea or a game plan of, like, what what reality is going to look like to versus what you think the reality is going to be like, those might be two separate things. Yeah. And so by having some more open communication about that, you can kind of base your expectations more on the reality that's probably going to happen. Yeah. You know, I'll have to to look into that. Yeah. Um, who is the most interesting person you've ever met and why? And this one always seems to, uh, I ask everyone, there's only one question I ask everyone and that's this one. (laughs) Right. Um, and I, I know it's a weird one to be put on people because it's, you know, there could be, multiple answers um which is fine mm-hmm. there could be um but is there any anyone that comes to mind you know actually i was just talking about this man today um 
that was uh, Libby Alcorn's husband, George. Mm-hmm. Um, and inter- I think if you say interesting, I mean, like, I mean, if it pops in your mind, run with it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess you can kind of take it in different directions. I would say I found George interesting because of the way um, he he had a grace to life <laughs> that was unparalleled. Um, he was a very attentive to 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 his wife Libby, um, and very, always kind of very present. And then you know he could be also in the back of the boat <laughs> while yeah. we were fishing and and snoring away. Like there was these moments that he just kind of <laughs> did his thing. But um, his level of being so patient and so endearing and so graceful, um, uh, and and even like when you'd see him at parties, you know. Um, mm-hmm the way he would just take a moment just to shake your hand and, and just ask you how you're doing. Um, this, that personal effect. I mean, it was, it just, I guess it inspired me to always want to be a better man. That's cool. Did you, do you ever have an idea of how, do you think it was just in his DNA or, or was it a learned, I mean, you mentioned being present, right? Like that's a, that's a constant struggle. For, for sure. All of us. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, there's no question. I'm sure it's a, it's a mixture of both. Yeah. You know, not only probably from his his career and his own personal experiences, you know, and not knowing George when he was in his 20s to how George was when he was in his 60s and 70s, you know. Yeah. But um, but maybe to see someone um, at their, their peak of their evolution evolve it coming together. That's cool. Um, it was always kind of an interesting fact about him. Yeah. That I think was a subtlety I think most people didn't see. Yeah. I mean, they always embraced him as a person. They loved him as a person. Um, they probably felt it whether they knew it or not. Yeah. 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 I think they just felt calm and reassured and at peace. And I think George just had a way of doing that. Yeah. Well, we're all, we're all trying to get there. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so fucking easy sometimes. What about you? What was your most interesting person? Well... Yeah, this guy, um, who who I'm going to get on here, um, Neil Fox, and he um, basically why he opened my eyes to the world of creativity Mm -hmm. in something in a way that was so mind boggling. Um, I mean, basically, he's created a this amazing company based on a, based on a true story, which is wildly high end travel based around recreating experiences, whether it's recreating the odyssey for a family or making up fake newspapers because, um, the children need the, the elves are losing light in the North pole and their ears are shrinking and like having to hire actors to, you know, with pointy ears. I mean, like, levels of of creativity and possibility and execution that it, at, at the time when I met him just apps you know I mean I, I was dumbstruck I, I had never even um, and this was this was obtained through you know years of world travel I mean I think I'll, I'll have to ask him but I mean I think it's like 14 years of traveling the world and then it was like well what can I do next and that was travel from England 
to Antarctica via natural power. Um, <laughs> so, <God. laughs> I mean, the stories, right? Well, we'll I'll get to that another time, but but that's why. I mean, it was you know going into a bookstore in Bhutan with him and asking him, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Well, I'm looking for inspiration." And then, you know, how do I rec- how do I recreate a lifelike dragon? for a family that I'm going to bring over here in the land of the thunder dragon. I mean, shit like that where it's just like, doesn't even, you know what I mean? I felt like I walked away feeling so small. <laughs> My creativity is so, but to be honest, I, I give, I give part of like this right now, right here doing this to like that initial, you know, meeting with him of just being like, wow, you, you, you know, and all I did was ask questions. Like I started and I couldn't stop. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, he, he's right up there. Yeah. Um, well, listen, man, I, I've taken a lot of your time and um, I really appreciate it. And uh, it was uh, it was a true pleasure to sit down and, and reminisce and then also hear, you know, more about uh, what you're doing currently. And um, I look forward to getting together uh, sooner than later again. Yeah. No, this was great. Thank you. Yeah, man. It's been uh, a true pleasure. Thanks again. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Permit to Think. My hope is this podcast offers meaningful conversation and stories from the fringe of societal norms. We'll see where it goes. Be sure to subscribe and support the podcast by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you are using. Um, For more information, head on over to the website, permittothink.com. And also, if you don't mind, forward this show on to anyone in your network who you feel might dig it. Also, before we wrap this up, how how can people reach you, Dan? Um, They can always find me at Teton Youth and Family Services. And that is tetonyouthandfamilyservices.org. Excellent. Well, thanks again, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Out.